Good morning and welcome to today's Big Hearted Podcast. Today I interview the amazing Candy Lawrence. Candy and I have been friends for a number of years now, uh, first meeting online through our shared love of, um, I think it might have been Teacher Tom and uh, Janet Lansbury, among others, and we connected that way. Uh, you'll see why I connected with Candy. She's so passionate and knowledgeable. Um, Candy's now a retired, multi-qualified educator of children of all ages. She was diagnosed as highly gifted at four and as low support autistic at 63 and has thus had cause to reflect on social challenges all of her life. An early reader and a writer of poetry from age five, she's always loved the power of words. Since retiring from the classroom, she's been create, creating targeted picture books to teach social and emotional skills in early childhood. She firmly believes that this is the best way to save the world from human folly, as our resilience and moral compass are so dependent on our early, early learning experiences. So we go right in depth around a range of topics Um and Candy's just so engaging and, as I said, knowledgeable. And she really is a bringer of change and uh, is, is really on a path and a mission to help those neurodiverse children uh, and help educators be able to connect to those children as well. So without further ado, I want to uh, start today's podcast and get going and hopefully you can enjoy it. We will run a competition, talk about that at the end. So you'll have to listen right at the end to find out what we're going to do about that. And uh, yeah, enjoy today's episode. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Big Hearted Podcast. My name is Victoria Edmund, and I am your host. Our aim here at the Big Hearted Podcast is to nurture a community of heart-centered educators to change the perception and delivery of early childhood education and care in Australia, and ultimately around the world. We want you to be inspired by our guests and the topics we bring to you to think of new ways of being as an educator. We want you to feel a sense of belonging via this podcast so that you can engage any time of the day or night in any place that suits you. We want you to become an educator that delivers education from the heart, as we believe this is how we create great change within our world. So join us as we discover new ways to inspire each other here on the Big Hearted Podcast. Good morning. Good morning. It is morning here today. I am so excited. I have the beautiful Candy Lawrence sitting with me chatting all things neurodiversity and probably a whole lot more. Thank you so much for coming on board uh, with our podcast today, Candy. Would you like to just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from? Okay, thank you very much, and I'm delighted to be here too. Um, well, I'm a lifelong educator. I started out teaching music, and I was trained to teach from kindergarten to year 12, and I did that for about 20 years, loved it, absolutely loved it. But I became very aware that I was different from other teachers, 
in a good way, I thought, and the kids thought it was a good way too. Um, I discovered that I was much more honest with the kids than your average senior music teacher. <laughs> and the, the children loved that. They, they loved that I always told them the truth. And that was really the basis of my success, that they trusted me to always tell them the truth. And that was a very important thing because music, music is a really um, heartfelt thing. And so mm. they had to write music and I had to basically judge what they had written with their hearts and tell them, you know, what was wrong with it, mm. which was hard. And it, it required a certain level of, of sensitivity mm. and care. But they knew that I wasn't going to tell them things that weren't right. So, so that was a really interesting thing. But I also found that I didn't get on very well with the rest of the staff. So I wasn't, I wasn't great with my peers. And that was something I'd also experienced in my own childhood or my adolescence in particular, um, that I, I wasn't very good with the whole peer group thing. Mm. And as time went by, I found that that, that was true no matter where I was. You know, I ended up in early childhood. Um, I moved, moved to the north coast of New South Wales mm -hmm. and found myself after not missing out on a couple of senior music jobs that I found I, I really needed to retrain and, and find another way to make money. So I went into early childhood. And again, the children loved me because I always told them the truth. Mm. And the rest of the staff found that difficult. Mm. And I think that's something that's a recurring theme in my life, that trouble starts when you're not honest with, with children in particular. And it, mm. our culture seems to have a belief that children are these innocent beings and vulnerable beings. And at, at a level that is true, but at the same time, adults tend to underestimate children. Mm. And I don't. And that's partly because, as I have discovered very recently in the last three years, I'm autistic. And so that screen that most people have between the world and themselves and you know, them and other people, it's not there. Mm. I just say how it is. Children yeah. love them. Yeah. And they respond to it. Children are extremely re resilient. They yeah. are extremely capable and they are not to be underestimated. Yeah. So th that's basically where I'm coming from. Stop underestimating children. And the reason I started to write books for children after I'd stopped working I, I ended up with a dose of cancer and I stopped working because I was ill yeah. and trying to come out of that experience I started making something of some of the stories I'd written that I that filled gaps in the repertoire of children's literature yeah. and yeah I, I just felt that we needed books that spoke to children directly about their world yeah now, I, I had a very interesting experience with the first story that I wrote. Uh, I was given the opportunity to talk to Penguin Books about getting it published. And I fell at the first hurdle because my book was too honest. Mm. And I found that startling. But publishers tend to have this belief that children are these innocent little beings, as I said, who... You know, you, you approach them with fantasy and you approach them with beautiful, creative pictures that are, are, are reflecting a beautiful world that isn't, isn't children's reality. 
And there, of course, there's a place for all those sorts of books. Those sorts of books are wonderful. But we also need books that show children themselves and their world. Mm. And that's that's where education comes in. Mm. You know, obviously, storybooks can teach um, fantasy and, and create lovely worlds in the children's head, and, and that's great. But we also need something that is a bridge between children and the real world. And yeah. this is... This is what I've tried to do in my books. I create stories that reflect the children's actual world yeah. and then insert in an approachable way a learning experience that will help the parents and the teachers to enhance children's understanding of their real world. Yeah. And, and children love these stories. <laughs> this is yeah. I get the most amazing feedback about the stories that I write. Children who don't normally listen to the whole story will listen to one of my books from beginning to end because they recognise themselves and they recognise their experiences. Yeah. You know, as adults, we do that too. We love to read a book that, that seems to resonate with our own experiences. Yeah. Why would children? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting. Like I come from a, a Steiner background. So truth, beauty, goodness is the cornerstones of what I teach when I'm with children. I, like you, like to teach truthful matter um, mixed in with a little bit of fantasy, you know, uh, who doesn't love a fairy? Um, but <laughs> for me, I always curated the books that I had in the space because I'm aware that the imagery that children take in, what comes in must come out. Uh, so for me, when they're fantastical stories of, you know, people jumping and sticking onto the sides of buildings and things like that, to me, that's of little value. Um, I would much rather talk about an insect that has that ability and weave that into a story and then go out and look for that. Um, and so I think with your books that are based around neurodiversity, if I can spit the word out, um, it's, it's vitally important now because we were just chatting before we hit record about our own diagnosis and my undiagnosed um, but knowledge of and how we fitted in with, um, it, you know, and, and saw the evolution of these kinds of brain functions and developments. And I, like you, always struggle with my peers. I get along with people that are older than me. So when I was going through primary school, it was all right until I got to year six and seven. And then I really struggled. And then again, in high school, it was good until I got to year 11 and 12. And by then I had a little bit more ability to mask and fit in. But as soon as like my own partner's 12 years older than me, you know, like I always get along with older people. So I completely understand what you're saying about your peer group. And that speaking of truth, I've always been that person myself too, where I'm not afraid to say what I think. And it's never with the intention of being hurtful or oppositional or anything like that. It's just sharing what I observe. And people often get offended at that. <laughs> they do, don't they? Very much very, so. Uh, truth is a fast track to being unpopular. Oh, 
Massively. And because people want to be in their victim mode, you know, they want to be a victim sometimes without being aware of it. And then when someone comes in and just goes, well, hang on, Mm, it's not quite like that. You know, this is what's actually happening. You blow their story apart and they don't like it. Um, But I think that's a real gift. Uh, for for people to be able to have that ability to be able to cut through all of the stuff. And this is where it's really great for working with children, I believe, because they do deserve truth. <laughs> they, they do. They know already. They, they don't have these filters that we put on as adults and they see And then they get confused because what they see and what we tell them are different things. And then they're having to differentiate between this and this over here and and find somewhere in the middle. So the other thing that happens is that um, adults tend to pretend that difficult truths don't exist and hope that they will go away and the children won't notice they're there. And I'm sorry, but children notice. Children are really sensitive to atmosphere and they're really sensitive to all the things that we've managed to block out over the years. Uh, it's, it's a problem. <laughs> um, I can remember a horrible experience that I had. I was actually about 12 at the time, so I was going into that difficult stage from childhood to teenagehood and my mother had to go into hospital and nobody ever explained to me what was wrong with her why she was there when she might come out if she was dying I filled in the spaces my imagination filled in the spaces where people were too cowardly to talk to me about something that I obviously wasn't going to not notice yeah but it was a, a really tricky subject. Now, I don't want to be judgmental about adults in this because it is hard to talk to children about these things because in the middle of reality and childhood, we have a, a big gulf, a big yeah. gulf which needs to be bridged in an age-appropriate way. Yes. And this, I think, is where adults struggle. Yeah. They struggle to talk about difficult subjects in an age-appropriate way, whether it's from uh, a lack of experience with children or it's not knowing where the child is up to in their development or just a a fear of saying too much and perhaps damaging the child. And I can understand all of that. Of course, I can understand that. And this is another reason I write my books. Yeah. Because I have that experience and that expertise and that training to know how to talk to children about difficult things and how to not take it too far. So, for example, I've got a child protection series and I'd never mention sex. Mm. Sex does not get a look in because, of course, nobody wants to be talking to a four or five-year-old or an eight-year-old about sex. That's well, inappropriate. Well, but you can teach them a lot. Them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. When, when you're reading a book and you're reading a book to the class, you don't want to be putting over anything there that mm. is going to sound suggestive or weird or frightening. No. And that is a really narrow tightrope that you have to walk. And, of course, parents have difficulty with it and teachers have difficulty with it. Yeah. And so I, I saw a huge gap in the resources, the same yeah. as I saw a, a gap in the resources for 
helping children to understand their autistic peers, which is how come I wrote my book about Bodie Finch. Now, there, there are these gaps here that just need to be bridged by someone who has the understanding, the expertise and the ability to talk to children. Yeah. So you, you raised Bodie Finch. That was, um, I believe, your first book. It was my first book. It was the first children's story that I wrote. I've been yes. writing since I was five years old. Yeah. Writing is just something I do. My mother was a, a writer in her spare time as well. And yeah. I've had a love of reading and writing. And I, I used to write poetry. I've won prizes for poetry. And, yeah. And, uh, I love the I've tales. Been published as a poet. And, you know, this is, this is my thing. My heart is in writing. Yeah. I went into music because I couldn't see a way to make money out of writing. <laughs> it's oh, very God. hard to make money out of writing. Yeah, yeah. So maybe you can share a little bit or a lot a bit about Bodie Finch because oh. he was, um, that was one of the first times, not the, but one of the first times I felt awe being in your orbit, seeing the process, because you so beautifully shared that. Um, Candy and I have been friends, we we're just talking for, we think about 12 or 13 years now online. And I believe it was through our fellow love of Teacher Tom and uh, perhaps Janet Lansbury, where, yes. we, where we connected via uh, Facebook because you kept popping up saying things that I'd just come to comment and probably possibly vice versa. So we became friends through there. And then we started sitting in the hot seat watching um, The Voice. <laughs> <laughs> And, and judging music. all of the uh, contestants because I sing, you're a music teacher, so there was another lovely connection there. But then I was in 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 awe of how you shared your process of creating Bodie Finch because you actually made all of the illustrations by hand. Yes, Are they illustrations if they're made by hand? I don't know. Well, they're always illustrations if they're yeah. pictures in a book, yeah. yeah. Um, they're collage. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, that that was interesting because I, I'd had that experience with Penguin and a few other people who I I tried to get to publish Bodie Finch because I, I felt that was a book that needed to be out there, yeah. a story that needed to be out there, and I I didn't have confidence in my ability to illustrate it, so I I asked a lot of people if they felt like trying to illustrate it for me, and I got a, a few people who said, oh yeah, I'll have a go, and nothing ever really came of it. Mm -hmm. It always fell apart at some stage. And so eventually I had a conversation with one of my friends who's quite an artistic person. I said, look, I can, I can draw faces, but I don't have the sort of ability to, to create the sort of bodies and whole scenes and all of that. You know, I, I, I just can't do that. I haven't got the experience. Mm. And she said, well, keep thinking about it. You know, you can do that. You, you can work out a way to do it. You just have to, to keep working out you know, what you can do and how you can make this happen. And I, I hit upon the idea of, after I'd sort of analysed the problem, I thought, well, I may not be able to draw bodies, but I know what bodies look like. So if I just cut out the parts, I can then pose the bodies into the body mm -hmm. language that I want. And body language is massively important in yeah. my books. The body language is half the story. So... I tried it out and I took a few pictures and I thought, I think this might work. Yeah. So next thing I, I suddenly had pictures to illustrate my first book, which was just incredible. And then there was a, a massive stroke of luck. There was another um, friend who I'd come across actually through politics. And um, 
I said to him, because he's an IT person, and I said to him, uh, do you know how, what, what sort of software would I need to be able to put my words with the pictures? And he said, oh, I'll do it. Yes. <laughs> Yay. And this was the Brendan Brasner who is on the cover of all my books, that his name is on the cover of every, every book because these books would not exist without his help and expertise. He was just amazing and has continued to be amazing and has supported me in, in the advertising, the, the marketing, the setting up my IT, setting up my shop. Yeah. He's just been fantastic. Yeah. So I've had a lot of help along the way to get these stories out to people. Yeah. So tell us, tell us all about Bodie Finch. Ah, Bodie Finch. Well, there I was, a high school teacher. I moved to the North Coast. I applied for some jobs in high schools. Missed out by that much. You know, it's in the country, it's really important who you know as yes. well as what you know. And, you know, I was I was not the local. I was the Johnny-come-lately. And I so I kept sort of missing out on jobs that I wanted. And I thought, okay, I've got to make some money here. So what am I going to do? And I ended up retraining in early childhood. Well, I did a bit of casual work and then I eventually got a job as a preschool room leader after I'd retrained myself. And for the first time, I came across a child who had undiagnosed autism and I knew nothing, nothing about it. Uh, Let me tell you the first thing this child did when he came into my room. He was five and he was powerful. He was big for his age, so he was strong, and he was wild. Mm. The first thing he did was open all my childproof drawers, (laughs) take out my stapler, you know, the staplers you use to staple all your pictures onto the bonanza boards and start shooting at people (laughs) with my stapler. This child, he may have been autistic, but he was a mechanical genius. He was amazing. (laughs) You could not keep stuff away from him. You had to teach him not to touch it because, you know, childproof did not work against him. He wasn't a child in his head. He was a Yes. But he had tremendous difficulty speaking. He had uh, very few words, very few words, and those that he did have were mispronounced. Great trouble with initial letters. And, of course, he had those other autistic characteristics. He did not want to sit down with the other children. He wanted to be on the move. He didn't want to go to sleep at rest time. He didn't want to eat the same thing as other children. All of these characteristics that are absolutely textbook autism. And I had to learn to cope. And one of the things that I realised was that while I was trying to learn to cope and asking specialists for help, you know, what do I do, what do I do, Nobody was helping the children to learn to cope because suddenly they had this wild card amongst them. Yeah. And some of them ostracised him. Yeah. And then I noticed this one particular delightful little girl, a very artistic little girl. She was just a, a sweetheart. And she kept trying to include him in everything. So if she was playing chasings, she would ask this little boy to play. And it was just beautiful to watch, you know, and that was just a natural thing with her that she was an inclusive person and she yeah. didn't care that he was wild as heck. She just wanted him to be happy. Yeah. And so that, that was the start of Bodhi and Zara. So the, this little blonde girl 
is my representation of Ella. Hi, Ella. <laughs> and and Bodhi is my representation of my little autistic boy. And I, I wanted something that I didn't have. I wanted a book that could explain to the other children the behaviours that they didn't understand. Because what happens with children is not being inclusive starts with them perceiving a dis- difference that they don't understand. Mm. And if they don't understand that difference, they will try to push it away. Yep. This is something that I, I discussed with Rebecca Thompson, who's another wonderful early childhood professional, and she actually helped me to write the handbook for Bodhi French. And she said, you know, difference, difference is the problem. And mm. so we need to cross that bridge and explain the difference to them. And so I had no book that did that, that, right, mm. I've got a niche in the market here. Mm. So gradually I developed this story of Bodie Finch and how he yeah. he um, eventually got to the point of saying a name, connecting with someone by saying a name. And that had a basis in truth too because the last day that that little boy was in my care, his father came to pick him up and he said, say goodbye to Candy and without much hope of him actually doing it. And this dear little boy who I'd come to just adore after finding him a little bit like Zara in the book, at first I didn't like him because he was hard. Yeah, He was difficult and I didn't know what to do with him and I didn't understand him. So I was just like the kids really. Yeah. And this dear little boy who we had come to understand as a staff, he came up to me and he gave me a hug, which was most unusual. Extraordinary. And he said, goodbye, Candy. And he looked at me. <laughs> he never looked at anybody. Yeah. Like Bodie Finch. He never looked at anybody, but he looked at me in my eyes and he said, goodbye, Candy, and pronounced it properly. Yeah. And his father just about fell over. He's, I've never seen him do that before, ever. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where the ending of, of Bodie Finch comes from. It's like the, the ultimate gift of respect. Yes. You know, and it's like, well, you made an indent, you made a crack, yes. you made a way into that world of autism and, and you know, you're autistic yourself, but nonverbal autism is a whole different kettle of fish. And yes. it's so to, 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 it shows that they take everything in and that, it's not impossible for anything, but for, for oh, how, how do you put it in words? It, it, it's like that is the ultimate expression of gratitude and respect and appreciation because what it took for him to do that, mm. incredible yeah. Yeah. connections of, of dots and um, awareness and being able to come from the place where he normally resides to into our realm, yes, so yes. to speak, yeah, it takes great courage for him to do that too. And what a mark of what a mark of respect! And that's just outstanding, isn't it? Uh, it is. And I have to emphasise that this boy was never punished mm. for antisocial behaviours. He was never punished. Yeah. And so, if he learnt to behave like that. It, it wasn't through, a, you know, an ABA method or anything like that. He hadn't been exposed to any of that. 
this was just through love and support and mm. repetition mm. and we we did use the um i think it was called the pals method of social connection um we'd had some training in that with the with the whole class not just with him with everybody so he mm. wasn't singled out mm. of you know how how to make connections with other children and so on and mm. he he had learned so much it was just wonderful and he'd learned all of that without being forced and I think yeah. this is a a really really important thing I think a lot of parent parents mistakenly think that they can turn their child neurotypical if they can just educate them <laughs> the yeah. right way and it doesn't work like no that. no I promise you it does not work like that no I, what, I... what happens when you try to teach a child to be neurotypical is that you are teaching them to put on a mask yes we call it masking yep girls tend to do it automatically autistic yep. girls like me i am a black belt masker yeah i can look normal i can look yep. completely neurotypical yeah but i'm not it takes and it's a so strange yes. it is exhausting it is yes. exhausting to be hiding your real self all the time and that that's where my latest book lily's mask has come from right one of the pieces of feedback i did get about buddy finch most people absolutely loved it and there was this one mother who wrote that it didn't have any resemblance at all to her daughter who was autistic and i thought okay yeah and that actually yeah. opened that door for me to see more about myself because when I was teaching my little Bodie Fitch boy I didn't know that I was also autistic I had no idea yeah. I knew yeah. I had social difficulties but I didn't yeah. know I was autistic and yeah. so that I I thank that mother for her honest feedback honest honesty is everything yes I thank her for her feedback because it made me think I have to still do better than this there's more to yeah. be known there's more to be transmitted and then there are more children who need help yeah and so it's taken a long time it's taken like six years but yeah. now i have the book for children who are autistic who mask yeah and okay. girls will do that much more so than boys because they are socially motivated yeah just, well i mean it's we, just a gender that. thing yeah. yeah, we talked about that before we started recording too in that mm. it only became apparent to me uh, when filming <laughs> educational videos and I'm like, oh, there's a, a big butterfly out the window completely distracted uh, But and thinking nothing of it because I've just always been like that. You know, I notice mm. those and there's things that I will notice before anybody else and people are like how did you even see that and I'm like I don't know it stands out to me but because my brain is wired that way and also when other people around me had diagnoses or were going through diagnosis but that I think that there's two main factors that helped me to be able to understand and also take away the ability to mask and that was COVID and then perimenopause because the hormone changes and and you know a lot of if you understand women's cycles when you start going into that place it's like you step yeah. into the innate wisdom that you have and you take no more shit 
you, you know, you just don't have time for it. And you're like, wow, I know where I am. I know who I am. I'm much more connected and that's not going to fly with me. So COVID and perimenopause kind of landed at the same time for me and that ability to mask. And I always thought I was a really extroverted person. I'm actually not because when I started the Truth About COVID page, there's like over three and a half thousand people on there and getting on there daily and holding that space and then energetically holding that space for all of those people too cost me so much in my energy where I would be out for half an hour to an hour every day and then it would take me three or four hours to just be able to feel like I could breathe again and mm. That's what a lot of neurodiverse people say. And I was like, oh, my gosh, wow, I did not. I just thought I was not coping and I wasn't coping. <laughs> Let's not get that. Yeah. I don't think anyone was coping in that time. But it actually gave me the ability to be more gentle with myself. And then it made me reflect on the children in the in care that I've had over the years. And I've had a number of neurodiverse children um, we all have. And then I've been the person that didn't understand but was so overworked I didn't have the time to understand either or to be able to look into it further. And this is where I think, you know, books like like yours uh, and, and there's TikTokers and Instagram pages and whatnot now that share so much vital information. So if a person was to realize or recognize that they have um, someone in their class that is a little bit neurodiverse what are some things that you find uh, or could suggest would be quite helpful for them maybe places to look or obviously your books would be the first port call um but, but other than that it's um, one of the ports of call <laughs> let's not get above our station it's one of the ports of uh, yeah. Uh, look, the first thing you have to look at is the environment. Um, because the thing that really sends kids over the edge, particularly kids who are autistic, the thing that sends them over the edge is overstimulation. And autism is a spectrum. Let us not forget this. Anything I say, do not apply to every autistic child. When I say girls mask, there are boys that mask. When yeah. I say, you know, boys, you know, have problems with language, girls have problems with language. Okay, everything is a generalisation. Yes. But I can say that one of the things that you can do which will reduce the pain for children is lower the lighting. Mm. If you've got bright lights in your room, lower the lighting. Find no. a way to do it, whether it's changing light bulbs, getting rid of the... Um, neon tubes they have dreadful things um curtains yeah. whatever just just try to make things a little bit dimmer and if you can't do it for the whole area at least find a space where you can lower the lighting because there are there are autistic people out there who literally need to walk around with a hat and sunglasses even indoors because light is painful mm. okay the next thing is lower the lower the sound levels okay oh, don't yeah. oh, Background music, oh, my goodness. Drives me Background nuts. Music. No, 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 no. Um, yeah. If you're trying to talk to the children and you've got background music on, the autistic person is going to have problems. Now, yeah. I am extremely sound sensitive. I'm okay with light. I'm not bad with light. 
But yeah. sound, oh, my goodness, my poor partner, he would sometimes come in and I'd have the television on and he'd turn on the radio and then he'd try to talk to me. And I would lose my shit. <laughs> yeah. I like that. And he would wonder what was going on. But I can't do it. I yeah. Even at, at parties, I hate parties because there's always so much noise. There are so many competing noises. Yes. So if you've got an atmosphere like that, you're going to send your poor little autistic kid over the edge. Yeah. Now think about what's happening. If you're a mum and you've got an autistic child, don't try to give him an or her an instruction over the sound of the TV or the radio. Yeah. Just don't. You know, yeah. it's not going to work for them. Yeah. It's not going to help them at all. Um, another thing is um, busy busyness yeah. in the environment, whether that's, you know, too much on your walls. I see a lot of childcare centres that have got stuff everywhere on the walls. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's, it's, it's like a, it feels like a crowd to us yeah. to have that stuff on the walls. I call now, it visual space. noise. Well, I call, yeah, I call yeah. Visual noise and it's visual noise, exactly. overwhelming. Mm, yeah. yeah. Less is more yeah. and muted colours are better. You know, yeah. where did this in idea come from that children need to have primary colors everywhere it's it's oh. not true it's, it's not true you know just calm it down beige yes. is okay there is nothing wrong with beige no but tone it down a little bit it's interesting when i wrote Bodie finch i the pictures that i make they have extra messages if you look at the color of Bodie finch's environment it's toned yeah. down. It's not full of primary colours. There are things that have primary colours, but the mat on the floor is a dull green. Yeah. Okay. And there are no sort of, we don't have a bright red wall or anything like that. We have natural yeah. wood furniture. Yeah. Okay. And this is a message. Tone it down. Keep it as natural as you can. Yeah. And that leads me into the next thing, which is, Take them outside. There are some kids who will be overstimulated by outdoors. Again, it's a spectrum. It's yeah. a spectrum. But a lot of children who have autism, they will feel better outside because there's more room. They're not going to be crowded by the other children. That's another thing that will send them off. Yeah. They often don't like being touched. Yeah, mm. I'm, I'm a bit funny about being touched myself. You know, I, if, if it's my idea, fine. <laughs> but yep. don't assume that I want a hug, okay? Yeah. And that's that's a really autistic thing too. Don't don't get too close. We really yeah. have a, a very big personal bubble. Yeah. Now outdoors is better. Outdoors will be good for all the children. Yes. It'll be particularly good for children who really need to have the room for that personal bubble. Yeah. I remember being in a um talk. I think it was a woman called Renata. I can't remember her last name. She's quite um, famous in the Steiner world. And she has studied with Imi Pickler, and I love Imi Pickler's yeah. work. Yeah. Um, and I've only just, like, scratched the surface of it. I haven't even delved right into it. But the bits that I have read and looked at in depth have been phenomenal. And um, she was, they were talking about a little child that had come out every day and was standing staring at this tree for days on end in the play yard. And the teachers were all like, oh, he's a bit weird. And, you know, they were all like, nah. and it wasn't until the last day that they went up and actually looked at what he was doing that there was a trail of ants going up this tree 
this child had been out there for days observing the ants just coming backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. And I can say ants are one of the most fascinating creatures they are. you could ever, ever come across. Where I go and sit, sometimes I haven't been up there for a little while, but where I go and sit, I do a walk and um, I tap my dog and you would understand this heat. I do. Well, <laughs> Dogs are everything. <laughs> Candy has this, this wonderful tale about banjo. <laughs> Oh, and and he's spam. Oh, it's so funny. The tales that this banjo gets up to are hilarious. It's quite quite like Dougal, Dougal the Broken. Yeah. We call him Dougal the Broken. But I haven't been out there for a little while. But I was there one day and I actually sat in a different spot to where I normally do. And there was this big dirt patch. And there was this like almost ring of ants and ants from opposing what I imagine were opposing. nests families come in and had a fight and then went and then all their posse left with them and I was like what did I just watch am I tripping or like what is that but this is what this little boy was doing for days on end and had the teachers been aware enough and it's not judgmental because I've been that person like what is that kid doing (laughs) like what are you doing but having and this is where we need to really connect into knowing that children are so aware and open and they notice things, right, especially neurodiverse children, they will pick up on things that we don't even perceive. And being able to be interested, not involved in their play because I think we over-involve ourselves. Agree. But taking an interest and going, well, he's been there for 45 minutes now. Maybe there's something of interest, but they left that for days. Yeah. So it, it, it's really important that we don't think always that we know better. Yes. A little, a little bit of respect. <laughs> a little oh. bit of respect. Children are human beings too. Don't assume that they're wasting time. Something's caught their attention. Absolutely. An autistic child in particular, they tend to hyper-focus yes. on something that interests them. Yes, that's yeah. not a bad thing. That's, that is why autistic people make brilliant computer programmers. You know, they will yeah. find a problem in the code much quicker than most people because yeah. they hyper-focus and they see detail. Like yeah. And, and things just stand out. Like yeah. it's it's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Yeah, and, and I think like going back to the environment, I coming from a Steiner background, um, I had the muted tones in my room. I had the timber furniture, the handmade um, props. And like uh, I used to make my own felt and make toys or if I didn't make them, I would purchase them, but they were handmade. And it was always the best quality because there's a massive difference in feeling the acrylic $2 square of felt that you can get as opposed to the 100% wool felt that you mm. will get that costs $12 for the same size. But the way it feels is so important if it's like I was wearing a broidery on glaze shirt yesterday and I could feel all of the little bits on my skin and it was irritating me. And I you never sure you're not autistic. I'm like the more I'm going into this conversation with you, I'm thinking, hey. Oh gosh. But but That's it's another one. Clothing tags. Yes. Know scratchy clothes oh my goodness yes. yeah <laughs> things that sit on a roll because I mean I've got rolls so there could be you know a little 
little seam that sits where the roll sits on it and it's just frustrating that it fills at you all day and it just makes you tetchy and if you've got to deal with that all day you're processing that all the time and then you're trying to process like you it's the classic last straw thing, you know, all these yes. little things that are irritating build up and build up and build up and they layer on top of each other and they're all little things. Yeah. But eventually the last straw will fall and autistic person or whoever will have a meltdown. Have a meltdown, absolutely, 100%. Yeah. And I talk a lot about that in the essential elements um, in Calm Spaces. So that's the course mm-hmm. that we've written. So Calm Spaces is all about talking about that visual noise in your space. Like I've got a lot of visual noise happening in the back here, um, and but it's 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 in an order. You know, I've got my yeah. books there and I've got more books there. The rest of this yeah. bookshelf is just another small thing of books and and a, a plant. You yeah. know, like it, it's, this is an office. I run two businesses from here. So that's pretty much the busiest space in here. Everything else is, is clear. But when I worked with the children too, everything had order. Like, and I got things like the Grappet toys and things like that and the Grimm's toys come in sets of so for me it's important to for two reasons because it's symmetrical I like symmetry and I like balance for me but also when it comes time to packing away it's so easy to see when something's missing and those toys are wood so they can be you know I could wax them and look after them and keep 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 them looking lovely and user-friendly. That's an environmental thing for me. Sustainability is important. Uh, But that lack of visual noise is so, it was always so important. And the only music I ever really played for the children, sometimes they would ask for Justine Clark and we would put that on as an experience. But other than that, there's so many noises going on around us the birds, I live in the hinterland, so the birds and the crickets, and I've just closed the, the window before we recorded because the crickets started up, you know, and it's just, oh, they buzz in your ears. And, like, if yeah. I had to process all of that, and there might be 10 different birds all going at the same time, plus the crickets, plus the pool pump, plus the person down the road mowing and someone else blowing and all those sounds come in, my brain has to do something with that. It has to categorise it and it has to put it somewhere. If I then had the radio on in the background, which is quite often full of inappropriate messaging for young children, if you're listening to just the basic radio, um, it's too much and and it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And then if you've got a process you know, this rainbow of colours all over your walls and, you know, things hanging and flapping in the breeze and my body, my brain takes that information in and has to categorise it and process it. Is it any wonder I'm having sleep issues at night time when yeah. my brain won't shut down? Like, yeah, every oh, shelf is full. Oh, <laughs> it's, In your head, every shelf is full of stuff. Yeah, yeah. it's full yeah. on and people don't realise and, like I go and visit educators sometimes. The first thing I say, can, can we, would you mind if we just turn the music off? <laughs> and yeah. instantly you can feel the energy in the room come down and you can yeah. feel the children. There's this frenetic that sort of happens and instantly yeah. you can feel that dropping. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting you talk about that. And yeah, I think uh, one other thing. 
that came up in my head when you were talking about, you know, you're ordering your space and having everything tidy. I, I can just hear the parents and teachers going, ha, 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 order, ha, ha, room full of children, ha, ha. It's not going to happen. And I know it's really hard to keep a, an area that's being used for children tidy. Can I just say less is more. Put less yep. stuff out to start with. Okay, you do not have to have every single toy you own on display all the time. In fact, that makes it really, really hard for everybody, not just the neurodiverse children, all the children. Yep. They will cope better if you put fewer things out. You'll also have variety then, you know, shut things away. Yep. Put away what you've got in your playroom, bring out something different. You know, you do yep. not have to have every shelf full of a variety of toys. No. Look, this, I, I operated an entire family daycare service in a converted single garage. This was my entire yeah. family daycare space. I've got a beautiful big window here and another window there. And, and this was my space. I had no other storage bar, one single door cupboard, which was also my laundry cupboard, for storage in my family daycare space. I had to become a ninja at making <laughs> sure that I was resourced well enough but not overstimulating the space and overfilling the space. Yeah. Could have done better. <laughs> now that I've researched this a whole lot more. But yeah. what I've learned and what I ended up doing was dividing all of my resources into seasons. So, and, and then each season I would have a box. So I had my staples, you know, the blocks, the trains, the cars, the dolls, um, the home corner, those things, and my grappet toys and, and Grimm's rainbow and things like that. Those things were my staples. But every season I changed the dress ups because yeah. in wintertime, I don't want the children going around in shoestring dresses you know, so I would have my long sleeve things out and things that were warmer, that we're going to keep them warm. Summertime, we had those less, less clothing dress ups, you know, um, but also all of the, you know, series of resources would come out every season and then be packed away. And the children would assist me in that. We would wash them. We would clean them. We would iron them if they needed ironing, mm -hmm. hang them out, all those things, because it's teaching them respect of the resources. But it's also a transition. It's yeah. a transition for those children who need those kinds of transitions to let them know that there's a change coming. And that yeah. leads into that discussion around the change in weather and the change of clothing that you need to have. Oh, my goodness. It used to take me six months to get my children to stop wearing track suits in summer. <laughs> And then it would take me six months to get them to wear tracksuits again in winter. Yeah. <laughs> they do. They, there's some children that really do require that and it's a gentle way of bringing it in. Mm. Uh, yeah, so that 100% agree with that less is more. Yeah, and I also want to say um, anybody who has actually taught with me will be looking at this and going, oh, ha, 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 you didn't do that. And I have made all the mistakes, okay? I have made all the mistakes and I've learned from them and that is why I want to help you not make them. <laughs> okay. yeah, exactly, exactly. And sometimes when you're in it, you're too in it. It's not yeah. until you come out of it that you have space and time to reflect on things. Exactly. Or you tend some kind of PD and, and the penny drops and you go, oh, where was this 10 years ago? I really could have utilised mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and and holding the space for children and having boundaries for children 
It's mm. so important because I went into a preschool room. I took over a preschool room as the lead educator after two. They were just terrible educators were in there. They they did not have an interest in the children. It was horrific. It took me three mm. months to pull that wild preschool room in, like wild, like you had yeah. to yell at the top of your voice because the noise levels were just mm. and the, the scattering of resources across the room. It took me three months of mm. solid, hardcore boundary setting and holding that space for the children to bring them in because there was no creative play happening, none. It was just empty everything, chuck it, blah, blah, blah. And those that were trying to engage in creative play couldn't because everybody else was just wild. So it's it's super important because that's when the children come down, they drop in and, and they engage in their play and it makes it easier for everybody to enjoy the space. Yeah. yeah. What you're talking about is a room full of stressed out children. Yes, you know, it's, it's not just you that's stressed out in there when you have to go in and yell. They are already stressed out. Yeah. They're acting out. Yeah. Because there's that's no a response to their environment. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, Candy, this has been so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, I just, it, it, it just reaffirms. It, it just reaffirms. <laughs> All things, and and uh, I think we could uh, definitely uh, continue this conversation again. So I'd love to have you back on the podcast at some time because I think there's a whole range of things that we can talk about. But just for now, um, can you tell us where people can go to find your books? And we'll obviously put it all in the show notes as well. Um, but are you able to share where people can find you? Yes, Um we, my, my friend Brendan, who does all my layouts, my brilliant IT man, he um, came up with the name Monkey Read Me because, oh. you know, children's are, children are delightful little monkeys. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's said with the most love. Um, so it's monkeyread.me. That's my website, monkeyread.me, yep. all in lowercase. Yep. And if you put a, a slash after that and then shop, you'll get to all the books. Oh, beautiful. Awesome. So thank you so much, Candy. It has been absolutely wonderful to chat with you. And I think the listeners are going to get a tremendous amount of insight and hopefully a whole lot of, oh, aha moments happening there as well. And Look, I, um, hope so. what, I, I, I wish I'd had something like this to listen to when I first came across my body finch. I'll tell you what, same. it would have changed my life. Oh, absolutely. And this is so, it's so great that we can get this out there now. So what I'm actually going to do is we're going to buy a couple of your books. And when this podcast comes out, we'll run a competition and uh, some people can um, enter to, to win one or two of your books. So Fantastic. we will, um, we'll get in touch with all of that and make that all happen. So um, yeah, if you're listening now, the competition will be out now. <laughs> if Yay. you're listening if you're listening after this is released, it may be over. You may have missed out, but you can go to the shop and buy them yourselves. And I highly recommend because they're beautiful books. The illustrations are lovely and the message is just so on point. So thank, thank you, you so much for your time, Candy. We really, really appreciate thank you it. Thanks for asking me. 
pleasure. It's a pleasure. All right. Well, we will be back next week with the next episode of the Big Hearted Podcast. Until then, big love. Bye. Hi, friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you got a lot out of today's episode. When we work on our own, we can sometimes be in a silo. So having new perspectives and different ways of looking at things is vitally important for the growth of our individual selves and our professional selves as well. We love feedback. So if you felt compelled to share what you thought of today's podcast, we would love to read your thoughts. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcast. That helps our podcast to get out to the wider community. And the more that hear what we have to share, we think the better it is. Thanks so much, friend. We'll see you next time. Till then, big love.